out your scriptures and open with me to Matthew 21, you are going to get a different picture of Jesus than what we just read. I wanted us to have that kind of juxtaposition in mind as we go into our text this morning. In the Bible, every word is important. Jesus talks about this when he says, uh, every word is God-breathed in, in Timothy, and, and not a jot or tittle will be lost. He is conveying that God's word, every word, is important. There's no wasted if, and, or buts in God's word. So when the inspired word of God spends time on something, and you've heard this before, we should spend time on that. Take, for example, in Exodus, nearly a quarter of the book of Exodus is taken up with something we normally start reading and then leaf through it and go to the end. When, when Moses is inspired to write about how to build the tabernacle, how to sculpt all those, those things that are supposed to go in the tabernacle. That's what we're tempted to skip over. But it is apparently critical to God because he spends a quarter of Exodus going over this. It is the place where God's presence is going to reside on earth. It is the place where he, he's going to meet with his people for the first time on earth. It is a place where he can be visible, seen by his people in cloud and fire. That's amazing. It is really the proto-temple, right? Where sin begins to be dealt with and atoned for. What God is showing us there in type and shadow, and I'm doing shorthand on the sermon that the sermons that I preached on Exodus, what he's showing there in type and shadow is the work and ministry of Jesus Christ. Those chapters are critical in helping us understand what Jesus came to accomplish. So God spends time on it. In the four Gospels, there are 89 chapters. There's 89 chapters in the four Gospels. Nearly 25 of them, almost 30% of Jesus' three-year ministry is wrapped up in the last seven days of his life. Out of Mark's 16 chapters, six of them. Out of Luke's 24 chapters, six of them. John's 21 chapters, seven chapters on the last seven days. And in Matthew, the section that we're just about to start, of his 28 chapters, six of them are about the last seven days of Jesus' life. What God spends time on, we have to see as critical. We are entering a critical part of Matthew's gospel. And this morning, we're entering into those six chapters together. In these chapters, there's many surprising things that are going to go on in these chapters. We're going to be surprised at his interactions with the Pharisees and the scribes and those religious elite. He's, he's going to really become very frank with them, very honest with them, very condemning of them. 
which he hasn't been before. We're going to be surprised at his teaching. He's going to turn from teaching about how to live in this upside-down kingdom. That's what he's been focusing on. How do we live in this upside-down kingdom? And he's really going to focus most of his teaching from here on out on, okay, this upside-down kingdom is going to come to an end. And here's how it's going to end. We're going to be surprised at how Jesus really opens up about who he is. We're going to be surprised at his overt declarations. From here he is proclaiming, from here on he is proclaiming himself the king of this new kingdom that he's been talking about. He's going to proclaim himself again and again and again. He is this king. And it starts right here in chapter 21, verse 1. Look with me at that. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went on before him, and those that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the highest! Hosanna, son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying in the temple, Hosanna, son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany, and lodged there. Father God, it is with great fear and trembling that I stand ready to proclaim your word. I am weak. I am leaky. I pray, Lord, that you speak through me, that your word, that your powerful word will change hearts and minds this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Throughout the gospel, Jesus has been veiling himself. I think you've noticed that if you've been with us throughout the months here. He's been veiling who he really is. He has revealed himself to those who have ears 
to see and uh, ears to hear and eyes to see. He's revealed himself. If you understand what he's saying, but to the masses, he's been revealing himself. He's been concealing himself. The masses, to the masses, he remains an itinerant preacher, a wise rabbi, a miracle worker. To the religious elite, a zealot. But with his entrance into Jerusalem, that all changes. All this changes. He is openly and clearly declaring himself king. Openly and clearly. Firstly, through a surprising proclamation. A surprising proclamation. In verses 8 through 11, we see that there's a huge crowd accompanying Jesus into Jerusalem. A huge throng. Where did this throng come from? Have you ever stopped to wonder? I mean, here's this this itinerant preacher coming in and, and there's hundreds of or maybe even a thousand people following him ahead and behind. Oh, again, we have to we have to contextualize what's going on here. You have to remember that in John's gospel, just a day earlier, a day or two earlier, he has raised Lazarus from the dead. Barely a mile outside Jerusalem and word gets around. And so when this Miracle worker, someone who raises somebody from the dead is coming in. They go out to greet him. And as he enters Jerusalem, look at what they're shouting. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What does Hosanna mean? Hosanna means rescue us. Save us. They're crying for rescue as he comes in. Save us now, they're saying. And most significantly, they're saying, Hosanna, son of David. Rescue us now, son of David. Son of David is that messianic royal title from the Old Testament, the prophesied king that would come from David's lineage. And the crowd was declaring him king, was identifying him as king. And what is new and surprising here is that he doesn't eschew that. He doesn't stop them. He is accepting that title. He is accepting what they're saying. All through Matthew, he's been telling those who understand who he really is to what? Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Right? When Peter describes who he is, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What does he say? Don't tell anybody. When he reveals himself in the transfiguration, what does he say to Peter, James, and John? Don't tell anybody. Miracles. Some people realize who he is. They realize the connection that the Messiah is going to come and again, as we see here, give sight to the blind and make the lame walk. What does he say to many of them? Don't tell anybody. To the demons. Don't tell anybody. This is different. There's a marked difference here in what Jesus is doing. He allows them to shout who he is over and over and over again. In fact, it is so surprising that the chief priests and scribes, you notice what they did in in verses 15 and 16. They come to him and they say, do you know what they're saying? Do you understand what they, who they're claiming you to be? Who, who they are saying you are? And do you see his, Very frank answer. Yes. (laughs) 
I know what they're saying. And that's who I am. In fact, that, it says it in the Old Testament. He quotes an Old Testament there. Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. He is openly accepting the title of king. In fact, from here on out, in the next six chapters, that is what he's going to be doing. He is going to be saying yes to all the people that ask him if he is the Christ, if he is the Messiah, if you are the anointed one, if you are the one we've been waiting for. He's going to be saying yes. He says yes to Pilate when he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Yes. He says to Caiaphas when he puts him under oath, are you the Christ? Yes. This is his great coming out, these next six chapters. And that is a surprising change from what we have been experiencing up to this point, up to this point in his three-year ministry. He also unveils who he is through his surprising humility, not just the accepting the Hosannas and Son of David's, but he also is unveiling who he is through a surprising humility. Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey. In verses 1 through 3, he directs two of his disciples to go into the, uh, the small city next to Bethany, Bethphage. And there he'll find a donkey in her colt. He'd spent a lot of time in the vicinity of those, uh, those two towns. It's where Mary and Martha lived and his dear friend Lazarus, obviously. People knew him. So it's not surprising that when they're untying this donkey and the, and the disciples say it's for the Lord, they know who he's talking about, and they let them take the colt. Again, Jesus is being quite obvious for those who have eyes to see who he is. And Matthew points this out. He says he's fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. 9. This, this, was, this was prophesied that this is how the king of the Jews would enter Jerusalem. Zechariah 9 is a, is a very encouraging chapter. It starts with God's judgment against Israel's enemies. Very standard oracle. Very standard. Yahweh was encouraging his people by saying, listen, I'm going to deal with your enemies. Justice will be meted out. They will be judged. Giving them hope for the future. But in the second half of that chapter, it changes from an oracle against the enemies of Israel to describing how their victorious king will enter Jerusalem. Riding on a donkey. This must have read very strange to the Jews of that time in Zechariah. When Zechariah pronounced this oracle, when Zechariah preached this prophecy, this must have sounded very strange to the Jews at that time. It's not strange that a king would ride a donkey, because a donkey was a royal animal in the Jewish culture. When David wanted to proclaim his son Solomon king, when there was some unrest during the transition, what did he do? He put Solomon on a donkey in First Kings, and he rode him around the city. People knew what David was saying there. This is your next king. But what is so strange is that donkeys 
are a peacetime royal animal. Kings did ride out on horses during wartime. But it's a peacetime animal. And so here in Zechariah you have the judgment on the enemies and who is going to judge them? A peacetime, peacekeeping king. Very strange. Very strange. You see, with Jesus, the people were expecting a wartime Messiah. That's what they were expecting. In fact, they wanted Jesus to be a wartime Messiah. That's what they were looking forward to. That's why they were saying, Hosanna, rescue us now. Can you hear the echo? Rescue us from the Romans. Son of David, ascend to your throne and do what? Consolidate the kingdom just like David did. The people, I think, had good motive, but just the wrong idea of who Jesus was. And he was declaring himself a peaceful king coming into Jerusalem. You see, they had expected, the people had expected Jesus to be much like Jacob's future congregation. They want him to restore the glory days. Restore the glory days to us. Jesus, restore the glory days. Jacob, you're our savior. Hosanna, Jacob is here. Restore the glory. That is how Jacob's congregation is going to think. I kid you not. What does Jesus come with? What do you come with, Jacob? You come with the same thing Jesus does. The gospel of peace. A seemingly very weak instrument. You see, he came to bring peace. Jesus came to bring peace. Romans 5 begins like this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. That's what Jesus came to bring. Peace with God. That's why he's riding in on a donkey, to bring peace with God. Not with the Romans, with God. And in a surprising way, we read Revelation 19. He's not riding in on a white stallion, but on a humble donkey. His eyes are not blazing with fire. His eyes will well up with tears. He's not wearing a gold crown. He'll wear a crown of thorns. He's not going to be dressed in a white robe dipped in the blood of his enemies. He's going to be stripped naked and drip with his own blood. He's not going to have a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. But words like, Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. He's not leading armies into battle but dragging a cross behind him. He's not laying waste to multitudes. He's laying down willingly on a cross for your and my sins. That's how Christ makes peace between you and God. By sacrificing himself in your stead 
paying your sin debt that deserves death, yet he dies for you. That is the audacious surprise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. While we were yet sinners, Christ humbly died for us. Christ humbly sacrificed himself on your behalf so that you may have peace with God. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, if you have not given your life to Christ, if this gospel that I'm describing is new, you can have peace with God. You might not even know you're at war with God. But you can have peace with God through Jesus Christ. But as we read in Revelation 19, that offer of peace will not last forever. The king is coming back. This king, this king is coming back in horrible and terrifying judgment. As John Piper wrote, when the king, the kingship of Jesus appears in the skies, it will be too late to switch sides. So as we see Jesus proclaiming his kingship humbly riding on a donkey, we must remember that he's riding back on a stallion. So behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, this is the day of your salvation. That's why there's an urgency here. Jesus becomes sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. But we must remember he's coming back in complete and utter justice. So seek the Lord while he may be found. And that's now. As we see Jesus humbly and willingly laying down his life to atone for your sins and mine, we must remember that he's coming back to lay waste to sin and sinners. So repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's why he starts his whole ministry that way. Do you remember that back in Matthew 3? It's right there in Mark 1. He starts his ministry saying, now is the time. There is an urgency here. It won't last forever. The olive branch turns into a sword. Now is the time. Thirdly, Jesus also unveils who he is through a surprising zeal. We see that in verse 12 when Jesus makes a beeline for the temple. And what does he find there? He finds money changers and people selling sacrificial animals. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. That had to happen. You have thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of people pouring into Jerusalem. They're not going to, they have to change their currency. They're not going to bring their sacrificial animals from Egypt. So there's nothing wrong with that. But over the years, what this marketplace had turned into was a, a, like he said, a den of thieves. Usury and, and exploitation and extortion. The money changers charge an exorbitant exchange rate. The sacrificial animals were expensive. And what was worse, they had moved this whole ordeal into the temple courts, into the court of the Gentiles. You see, the, 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 the temple was created and made with concentric squares going out with the Holy of Holies in the middle. 
And the last square on, uh, on the outer outskirts was the, the court of the Gentiles. And this is where those who were not Jewish could come actually into the temple and meet with God. And it was taken over by this marketplace. And it infuriates Jesus. Infuriates him. John tells us that he made a, a whip out of cords and was, was whipping the money changers. Overturning the tables, he says here. And John tells us another very, very, very interesting detail that Mark ex- excludes. It says there that, that his d- disciples saw this, saw Jesus doing this. And by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, they, they, came, they brought back to mind Psalm 69, where it says the zeal for his father's house will consume him. The magazine bookseller runs a competition each year to find the oddest title of the year. Competition rules stipulate that the book has to be nonfiction and it has to be a serious book. One year, the winning, the winning book was Highlights in the History of Concrete. The runner-up that year included the Illustrated History of Metal Lunchboxes. Third place was the development, this might be interesting to you, the wards, the development of the brain and behavior in chickens. <laughs> Special mention that year was given to a book called Soviet Bus Stops. It's amazing what people get excited about. I mean, really. Think about someone who poured hundreds and hundreds of hours of research into each one of those books. They were passionate about it. They got it published. But that begs the question. Brother, sister, what is it that consumes you? What is it that you're passionate about? What is it that you have unending zeal about? What do you love spending your time on? What is it that excites you? Think of that right now. Think of it. Maybe you're getting a little butterflies in your stomach because you want to go and do that thing. Or thinking about the next time you're going to do that thing. Sewing. Surfing. Hunting, cycling, four-wheeling, antiquing, antique cars, traveling to new places. The list can go on and on. What is it that you're passionate about? The challenge that we see here through what Jesus did in the temple is that that feeling that you get of anticipation, excitement, the thing that you pour your heart, mind, and soul into should be Jesus Christ and his church. That's where your zeal should be. That's what Jesus was consumed by. And that's, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Slowly, 
over time, what he gently and gracefully leads us into. That kind of passion for his son and for his body, the church. My mother used to tell me, Blake, being a Christian is hard, but it's the most exciting life you can live. Someday, our passion will be like Jesus. Someday. It will. We read about that in Revelation 4 and 5, where the multitudes are perfectly happy, staying for eternity in God's presence, praising him. Someday, we'll be there. But we're not now. That's part of our growth. That's part of our sanctification. That's part of the journey is to fall in love with Jesus and to fall in love with what Jesus is in love with, which is his church. That's a journey. So Jesus has just revealed himself as the king of the new kingdom. And we're on a journey together to see what that king will do in the next seven days to show how he reigns over that kingdom. Please pray with me. Father God, we thank you for this time. Be in your word. We thank you that you are king, that you do rule. And we pray, Lord, that, that we start to live in that rule. That we start to lean in and feel secure that you're our king. And that because of your loving sacrifice, because you loved us first, our love can grow towards you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.